Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm your host, Bill Scher. I'm joined by the author of a fantastic new book, Building the Great Society, Inside Lyndon Johnson's White House, Josh Zeitz. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for the invitation, Bill. You wrote this book 50 years after the final uh, year of the Johnson White House. We are still debating uh, how good a President Johnson was. Uh, what's your bottom line? Was Johnson uh, a good president? Uh, if I have to answer yes or no, I'm going to go with yes. Uh, obviously, the the fatal flaw for Lyndon Johnson was Vietnam. And so he is largely viewed as a so-called flawed giant, if I could borrow a, a phrase or the title of a book by the historian Robert Dalek, right? But I, I, I think that... Um, you know, Vietnam's another issue, and we can cover that. In terms of the scope of both legislative and administrative achievement, um, very few presidents, uh, perhaps excepting Lincoln and FDR, would rival or exceed Johnson in accomplishment. Um, very few have brought the kind of policy uh, expertise and seriousness to the job that he did. And largely, the, the point I tried to raise in the book, very few have built uh, White House staffs and have, have built administrations um, that have, that have been nearly as formidable as Johnson's. So I, I think on the whole, he's a very successful president with a, with a disastrous foreign policy legacy. Is there a reason why one track work, the domestic policy team was on point and the foreign policy team was not? Yeah, I think, you know, when, when you talk about Vietnam, when you look at that, Johnson's Vietnam policy, it's, it's really important to remember that with the exception of George Ball, the undersecretary of state, there literally until 19, late 66, 1967, there weren't any members of the Democratic establishment who actually contemplated, you know, exiting Southeast Asia, um, uh, de-escalating that war. I mean, it was it was consensus. It, it wasn't a weak, you know, it wasn't that Johnson himself was somewhat intellectually uh, insecure or weak and, and, and folded before a bunch of hawkish generals or, or Defense Department officials. It was, you know, domino theory was simply consensus thinking. And if that was the case in the Democratic Party establishment, Republicans, as Johnson said, if, if he got out of the war, he later said that, you know, they would, quote unquote, shove it up my ass, you know, over and over and over again. And, and it was true. He he was quite sure, and he was probably right, that if he tried to de-escalate Vietnam, Republicans would do to him what they did to Harry Truman over the question of, uh, of Korea. So I think he was in a, a lose-lose situation. I think any president probably would have made the same set of, of deliberations and decisions that he did because it, you know it's easy 50 years after the fact to blame Lyndon Johnson for Vietnam. That that lets everybody else off the hook. That lets the public off the hook, which largely supported the war until late 68, mid 68. It lets the foreign policy establishment off the hook. It lets, you know, 100 senators and 435 members of, of Congress off the hook. Almost all of them not only supported it, but demanded it. So, it, you know, I, I, I think 
to lay it solely on his doorstep is is historically um, uh, wrong. Now, your main focus in your book is the domestic side, building the great society. Uh, we're still debating whether that was good domestic policy or not. It's it's treated by conservatives as uh, the a disaster, the, the proof of proof that the welfare state doesn't work. It's lauded by uh, the left as the building blocks of what's made um, America strong today. Where do where do you fall down that debate? Sure. I mean, I, th- I think it's both, uh, um, uh, you know, a towering set of accomplishments, uh, but also one that 50 years later, we should certainly revisit. I mean, if you look at the, the totality of the Great Society, we're talking about anti-poverty programs like Head Start and Medicaid. Um, we're talking about Medicare for senior citizens. We're talking about, uh, you know, subsidized school meals for very poor children, nutritional assistance um, like SNAP, which was born in the Johnson administration as food stamps. We're also talking about civil rights laws like um, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act and a raft of environmental um, laws and regulations as well. We're talking about the first serious commitment of federal dollars to primary and secondary education and to to private and public universities. So if you took all of this away today, it's almost impossible to imagine the world without most of these great society programs. And yet Republicans have, for the better part of three or four decades, railed against it as somehow a kind of bundle of expensive and failed initiatives that, you know, contributed to human suffering. I mean, Paul Ryan is a great example of this school of thought. You know, he believes that the the quote unquote top-down approach um, that the great society embraced, uh, and th- these are his words, quote, created and perpetuated a debilitating culture of dependency, wrecking families and communities, which is, of course, I, I always love it when Ryan says that kind of stuff, because it's you know, worth noting that he uh, he went to college largely on, on you know, courtesy of supplemental social security, which he, he got after his father died when he was young. And he's worked for the public sector with the exception of like two years in his entire life. So he's never been, he's never actually, you know, like almost never like had a private sector job, not had publicly, uh, you know, provisioned uh, healthcare or salary. So that, that's, you know, and he'll have a defined benefits pension when he, when he retires. So maybe sooner than later. Right. But put that aside, right. That's the sort of like, you know, Republicans have, have long been caricaturing the Great Society as this experiment in like, you know, European style socialism. And what's what's fascinating, what I tried to look at in the book is that, you know, put, put whether you like the Great Society or not to the side, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that in 1963 and 1964, Lyndon Johnson's White House very seriously considered a whole range of measures um, to combat poverty and ensure greater uh, equality of opportunity that would have um, potentially been been radical in the way that the the great society is caricatured from the right. So they looked at potentially um, creating a system whereby every family would have a minimum family income. They looked at um, potentially redistributive economic policies like a negative income tax. They rejected those out of hand, and instead they embraced a whole host of qualitative measures like education workforce training, access to health care and food security, political empowerment, because they believe that in uh, a country with a, with a growing economy and low inflation, that the key to ensuring um, greater shared prosperity was not to divide the economic pie up into smaller pieces, but to grow the pie and to um, empower each individual to enjoy 
um, uh, a fair share of that growing pie. It was Walter Lippmann, the famous, you know, at that point was an octogenarian, uh, you know, famous uh, political journalist. He's the one who came up with that um, with that kind of analogy that, you know, he, you know, he said, if you, um, how did he put it? He said a generation ago, and he was thinking of the 1930s, it would have been taken for granted that a war on poverty meant taking money away from the haves and turning it over to the have nots. But in this generation, he said, a revolutionary idea has taken hold. The size of the pie can be increased by intention, by organized fiscal policy, and then a whole society, not just one part of it, will grow richer. So, if you want to look at this from the simplest, uh, you know, the sort of simplest way of iterating it is, the Democrats who staffed Lyndon Johnson's White House considered redistributing wealth and income. They ultimately decided, for a whole bunch of reasons that that tell us a lot about the mentality and the liberal mind in the 1960s, they decided ultimately that if you furnish um, individuals with the tools they would need to help themselves, um, that would be sufficient. And that was really the guiding principle behind the Great Society. So in making that argument, you are not only saying that the conservatives have it wrong. You're also arguing, if I, if I understand the book correctly, that the Great Society was not a left-wing radical project, but fundamentally moderate in its inclination. Is that correct? That's exactly right. I mean, I view this as being um, a fairly centrist and mainstream set of programs. Now, different pieces of it were obviously highly disruptive um, and controversial in their day, particularly the civil rights laws and to some extent Medicare and Medicaid. Um, at the time, they quickly became um, you know, a matter of consensus. Uh, but today, the component pieces of the Great Society are, are wildly popular. They're, they've you know, unless you're Paul Ryan, they've been considered for many decades um, inviolate, and that's one of the reasons they've been, you know, so difficult to dismantle. And and they're rooted in this, you know, this kind of very, uh, you know, common sense American idea, um, for good or bad, that you, you know the best way to to help people is to give them a helping hand rather than a handout. Um, by and large, that was the case. Lyndon Johnson, you know, was president in an era when. Uh, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC, the old, you know, uh, essentially welfare program that the federal government had administered since the 1930s, and which was largely dismantled in the 90s. He was president in a, during an era when um, increasing numbers of people became eligible for it and actually enrolled in it. And this actually gave him um, he, he was not happy about this. He viewed he viewed permanent welfare dependency as a dangerous and um, trend, and, and he was much more interested in workforce development and education and nutritional programs to help people break the cycle of poverty. You saw time and again in these memos I'm looking at by his staff members in the 1960s. You know, they're all saying that like you want to you want to take a whack at the at the causes of poverty, not at poverty. So. It, you know, in a very different context, a lot of their language actually sounds like Paul Ryan in some respects, but obviously they came at it from a much more um, public-minded uh, and kind-spirited uh, way of thinking about the problem. So for people trying to assess how well these programs have worked over the past 50 years, what metric should we be using? You, you hear people throw stats around all the time making both sides of the case, uh, what is the most objective way to determine uh, who's right in this? Well, I mean, there are a lot of ways to do it, right? I mean, one simple way is just like, let's imagine the world without the Great Society. Today, 
130 million people, which is 40% of the country, rely on it for healthcare, primarily through Medicaid and Medicare. You could take that away, and then you'd have to listen to imagine what that looks like. You would have to listen to voices from 1957 and 59 when senior citizens came before a select Senate committee to talk about their problems in, in attaining healthcare. Um, and these are really crushing testimonials where senior citizens are telling these senators, you know, it's embarrassing that I have to go to a public clinic because I don't have money to afford a doctor's checkup or I can't afford hospitalization. It's not even, you know, in in the realm of consideration or my wife got sick and I had to go and beg family members for the money to cover the hospital hospital bills. I mean, these were crushing um, and really dramatic stories. And we could wind that clock back um, but in an age when America is, you know, a, you know, experiencing a, a progressively aging population, that would be pretty dramatic. Uh, I, I think most people today believe that, you know, senior citizens deserve health care at least as good as the House Speaker. Um, you could also imagine doing away with Medicaid today. Republicans have certainly tried to do it, tried to block grant it. But the majority of people who rely on it are either elderly, you know, relying on it for um, nursing home care after they've expired the rest of their savings, um, or, or usually, you know, mothers with children or expectant mothers. Um, that's a very, that's a, that's a reality that very few Americans, I think, would, would put up with. Today, 30 million children rely on great society programs for subsidized school meals, 20 million families, which would, you know, you probably multiply that by a factor of three or four, you know, Milton. 30, you know, that could be 60 million people rely on it for nutritional assistance through SNAP. The reality is if you do away with those programs, um, you would have uh, human suffering uh, of a variety that we haven't seen in many, many decades. These are stopgap measures. Now, there's a reason that eligibility for these, these programs has grown well beyond the expectations of their framers. And we should talk about that a bit during this conversation. But the fact of the matter is these are the programs of record that help alleviate and remediate that kind of suffering, particularly in, in secular down cycle, in down cycles, economic down cycles of the sort that we saw in 2009, 10 and 11. Um, you should also, you know, we can also imagine a world without the civil rights act or the voting rights act this, you know, and I think today most Americans couldn't even imagine a world in which African-Americans attend segregated schools, in which they're not permitted access to places of public accommodation. Um, it would be hard to imagine rolling back the clock, although I, I think there are certain people like Chris Kobach who do, um, but rolling back the clock you know, to a, you know, the kind of reality that existed, for instance, in Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Georgia, where you know, black eligibility uh, you know, in Mississippi in 1965 6.7% of African-Americans and 19% in Alabama had managed to actually register to vote. And of that small figure, very few were actually able to vote without the threat, you know, cast their ballots without the threat of violence. That's only 50 years ago. It's not, it's not lifetimes ago. It's, 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 it's literally our parents can remember that reality. So rolling the clock back um, to that reality, I think, is, is something that most Americans, at least in the center, center left and center right, um, would disapprove of highly. Trying to tie all that together, if the Great Society is a proven success, and if it is fundamentally moderate in its uh, policy roots, uh, in a world where uh, government likes to follow best practices and build on uh, past success, how should this inform how policymakers look at our uh, social problems today? Sure. And I, I would back up again to look at the kind of the 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 way in which liberals who framed the Great Society thought about the world. Remember, 
these are people, many of them had come, many of Johnson's staff members that had actually come to Washington to, to work for John Kennedy in the New Frontier. Others were Lyndon Johnson um, aides from the Senate days, who were you know, a group of very talented Texans. What they all shared was a kind of post-war, post-World War II mentality. This is an era when if you were, well, we can back up even further. If you were a liberal and certainly a liberal policymaker in the 1930s, you looked at capitalism and you assumed that it was sick, that it had essentially run its course. Um, there was a prominent economist, Alvin Hansen, who taught at Harvard. Um, and in 1938, he gave a, uh, his presidential address to the American Economic Association. And he, he foretold a future marked by, quote, sick recoveries which die in their infancy and depressions which feed on themselves and leave a hard and seemingly immovable core of unemployment. What that basically meant is liberals were convinced that you know you were looking at a pretty gloomy future. Capitalism, as it operated in the United States, had had, had just had, it had failed. World War II proved them wrong. Right, this is an era when the United States emerged as the world's leading economic superpower, the arsenal of democracy. Um, the country was you know able to you know deploy and supply a military of sixteen million men, defeated fascism in Europe and the Pacific. Um, lifted the country out of the depression, and then, you know, through skilled planning and economic management, also managed to rebuild the global economy, particularly Western European and Japanese economies. So a lot of post-war liberals came to believe, just as an article of faith, that through the careful application of Keynesian economics, that experts could could sustain, you know, growth in perpetuity at low inflation. And if you looked at the world, you know, just the, the, the way that America looked in the 1950s and 60s, it seemed right. I mean, you had, you know, the, the, the growth, the explosion of suburbs and places like, you know, Levittown, Long Island, right, where veterans are returning to buy beautiful Cape Cod homes. They're buying, you know, cars. They're enjoying access to middle class comfort that would have been unimaginable in prior years. Consumer culture is booming. Uh, increasing numbers of workers, uh, particularly those in unionized manufacturing and extractive industries, have access to things that would have been unimaginable, like annual cost of living adjustments, uh, employer-based health insurance, paid vacations, private pensions. So capitalism seemed to work, right? Um, and in that kind of environment, it was easy for liberal policymakers to say, look, people who are being left behind are being left behind in ways that are easily remedied. They you know, they need workforce retraining. Um, they need access to education. Uh, if if they don't have access to health care, we need to make sure that they're healthy, that they have enough to eat so that they can go, you know, get a job and pull themselves up out of this poverty. Um, Jim Crow was seen as being an artificial labor and housing force, you know, market force. And if you remove that kind of artificial barrier, in theory, African-Americans would face, you know, or would enjoy opportunities to avail themselves of all this growth and opportunity you, you fast forward 50 years later, and I think we view our economy much more differently, you know, much differently. A lot of those unionized jobs have disappeared. They've been replaced by service jobs, which pay maybe a living wage, but oftentimes not, which requires, you know, one or two, you know, somebody to have two jobs in order to make ends meet. The things that um, most working and middle class folks could take as an article of faith in that era, like defined benefits, pensions and employer based health care. Uh, those things have gone away, and they haven't been replaced by anything that's viable other than the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I think, you know, as well, uh, one of the problems that Johnson's policy aides looked at in the mid-60s, particularly among African-American families, was the rate of, um, you know, children living in single-parent households. Now, 
there's nothing wrong with that from a you know at a high level but in an in an era post-1973 when wages stagnated and it increasingly required two wage earners in a household to keep the household above the poverty line well you know that does create a situation whereby more children are living um, and and more single parents mostly mothers are living below the poverty line the so it's it's I think a perfectly legitimate question to ask now you know is the great society and and its component parts are they adequate to an economy that does not at all resemble the economy um, in which the Johnson White House sort of designed you know the great society and is it possible that you know in a in a country that's seeing growing inequality um, wage stagnation um, higher rate of single parent households is it, is it possible that we need to come up with a, a host of new solutions in order to replace those programs that's a legitimate question i think uh, we're talking to Josh Zeitz on the New Books in Politics podcast, author of Building the Great Society, published by Viking in January 2018. Uh, one of the many debates around Lyndon Johnson is uh, why was he so effective uh, as a domestic policy president? Was it because he uh, because of the treatment, how he how he twisted arms and, and cajoled uh, Congress to do his bidding or his use of the bully pulpit? Uh, or was it because uh, just the Congress was very democratic at the time and, and very liberal in the in the Obama presidency? There was a lot of negative comparisons between Obama and Johnson. Why can't he twist arms and bully his way towards his ends the way Johnson did? Uh, and I saw there was there was one review of your book by Michael Kazin at the New Republic, uh, arguing that uh, Johnson wasn't uh, uh, his skills weren't as important as some uh, make it out, saying they could have been less adroit and still enacted a large chunk of the reform agenda with Congress as it was situated. Uh, how, how important was Johnson as a political operator to his success? Look, he's important, but most books about Lyndon Johnson focus on and, and most movies as well focus on his legislative mastery. Right. He was the master of the Senate, as Robert Cairo once said. Um, and so if you if you just look at the kind of popular treatments of, of his presidency, whether it's the Woody Harrelson movie, which I thought was a really fine movie and would recommend to people, um, despite the weird makeup job uh, or, you know, all the way, which was a began life as a Broadway play. And then, you know, HBO did a really superb um uh, film version of it with Brian Cranston. You know, it always ends when he signs the Civil Rights Act or when he signs, you know, the tax reform bill or when he signs Medicare and Medicaid. That's where the stories end. And I, I do agree, you know, with Kazin, who I'm, I'm not sure actually understood the point I was trying to make, but I, I do. I, in fact, I don't think he did. Um, I, I agree with him that, you know, that essentially like Johnson was handed two major advantages, which made all of his legislative mastery kind of irrelevant. One, uh, John Kennedy's death, you know, created uh, a, a tremendous amount of goodwill for the new administration. People were eager to get behind the new president. They wanted him to succeed. So that gave Johnson a lot of um, a lot of momentum in 63 and 64. And then the blowout victory he won in 64 against Barry Goldwater delivered supermajorities or liberal progressive supermajorities in Congress, you know, that enabled him to break the legislative logjam that John Kennedy had never been able to break and that, you know, Harry Truman had found difficult to break as well in, in earlier years. Um, I think what's where I wanted to shift attention was not to how he got the bills passed, but to how they stood up all these programs, administered them, created them, um, 
you know, worked both with the federal bureaucracy and the private sector to make a program like Medicare a reality within 11 months of its passage, um, you know, did all of this while desegregating a third of the country um, and, and actually used the Civil Rights Act as well as, you know, the AIDS Education Act or the, uh, or the Medicare and Medicaid Acts in order to desegregate nursing homes and hospitals throughout a third of the country. These are remarkable accomplishments. So I was much more interested in sort of how they did these things rather than how they got them passed through Congress, because I, I do agree that fundamentally, um, you know, that story has been overplayed uh, because it's a good story and it's dramatic. But it's important to remember, for instance, in the Civil Rights Act, you know, Johnson lent a the full force and power of the presidency from an optic standpoint. And that was tremendously important. But what people do forget is that he didn't, he didn't actually move any votes in the Senate personally. You know, he, the Johnson treatment itself did not produce a single vote in the Senate for that bill. One of the things, one of the things you do in your book is you highlight uh, Johnson's aides who have not always received the same level of uh, spotlight as others. Who, who do you think are the unsung heroes inside the Johnson White House? Sure. And you're right. Look, Johnson would suck the air out of a room. So, you know, his aides were expected to kind of stand against the wall. There are people like Jack Valenti and Bill Moyers who are fairly well known for their careers after working for Johnson. Um, you know, they were they were uh, you know, they they began the, their their public careers really with him. Uh, you know, Valenti was a 40 year old advertising and PR exec from Houston who knew Johnson a bit, had married his one of his former staff secretaries, um, he was advancing a wing of the or a leg of the the Texas trip in Houston for LBJ and John Kennedy just as a volunteer. And Johnson asked him if he wanted to come along for the rest of the trip. So he was accidentally riding, you know, twelve cars back in the motorcade on November twenty second. And uh, after the John Kennedy was assassinated, they asked Valenti to get on. You know, Johnson told him to get on the plane with him. And so if you look at that iconic photo. Of, uh, of Johnson taking the oath of office on Air Force One. If you look to the far left of the frame, you'll see Jack Valenti crammed up against the side of the, the plane looking really confused. And as he later said, I had no idea why I was on this plane. He didn't know anybody who was on it. He didn't, you know, it didn't work in politics or government. He became you know, the, essentially the, um, the kind of gatekeeper to, to uh, LBJ, held the same job that Rob Porter just got bounced from under Trump. Um, and so he was the gatekeeper who decided what information flowed to the president. Um, you know, he later estimated that Johnson read 300,000 words each week in policy memoranda, which meant that Valenti probably read twice as much that week because he had to call through what the president should and should not see. And he became a real good, honest broker for Johnson um, and, a, and, a, and, and, and was really seen as a champion of the oddball idea um, made sure the president was exposed to a, the widest variety of opinions possible. Bill Moyers is sort of a different kind of character. Moyers was uh, advancing the Austin leg of that trip, and whereas Valenti was sort of accidentally on Air Force One the minute that that Moyers heard that John uh, Kennedy had been assassinated, he made sure he was on Air Force One. He chartered a plane to get himself back to Dallas and then talked his way on to Air Force One. He was this very earnest, you know, ordained Baptist minister who, um, who you know, also a Texan who had worked for Johnson uh, in his Senate office and on the, the presidential race in 1960. He then took a job um, working, uh, you know, as a sort of number two guy at the Peace Corps. Uh, he joined as a utility player in the LBJ White House and served after 1964, after late 64. He was essentially the de facto chief of staff as well as press secretary for a good part of his tenure. Um, really important to the president in many ways, his right hands. But there were also the, these other fascinating characters, uh, 
There's a guy named Horace Busby who had worked off and on for Johnson, then went into the private sector and then came into the White House. He was uh, basically what he called an ideas man for the president. Um, unlike some of these other characters, he, you know, he had kind of a, a shelf life. He would, he would work for Johnson, then he would leave, then he would come back and he'd leave. He couldn't kind of handle working for Johnson for more than a year or two at a time because of the intensity of it. Uh, a guy named Doug Cater, who was the administration's point man on uh, health care and education, who is a sort of unsung hero because he played a, a, a instrumental role in helping desegregate schools on behalf of the administration, particularly in the South, but also in northern cities. Joe Califano, who later became the administration's kind of domestic policy czar, and a fellow named Harry McPherson, who joined um, in 1965 as chief counsel, but who was really a calm and steadying force, you know, which was an important, an important function to play because Johnson was such a tempestuous character. And McPherson was one of the few people who could really kind of like deal with him without letting the, the extremes get to him. So he had seen that such a, such a talented group of aides uh, helping him advance policy. How do you contrast that with, uh, the current uh, Trump White House. Oh, I mean, it's like night and day, right? I mean, there, you know, if you believe the reports, which one must, at least for the sport of it, you know, one of the reasons that McMaster drove Trump so crazy, H.R. McMaster, was that he insisted on providing him with different foreign policy options and would present detailed, you know, expositions of of, of facts and and intelligence. And you know, Trump doesn't like that, right? I mean, it's if Johnson read three hundred thousand words of policy memoranda that Jack Valenti called through, it sounds to me like the equivalent, you know, staff man working for Trump is supposed to figure out how to limit the president's intake to 300 words a week. I mean, th- these are people who don't take policy seriously. And it shows, you know, if you look at people like Moyers and Califano and Valenti and Doug Cater, they read widely, they were immersed in economic theory They were the White House sort of liaisons to the academic and think tank communities, which Johnson availed himself of much more than John Kennedy ever did. This is one of the sort of like hidden gems of, you know, what I discovered is that, you know, for all of the the Kennedy's sort of, you know, reputation as being real intellectuals and plugged into universities and whatnot, they weren't for the most part, whereas LBJ wanted to be. Um, So, you know, you look at his staff and they took governing seriously. Johnson had grown up politically during the New Deal era. So he knew that a lot of these bureaucrats who were staffing these kinds of otherwise anonymous agencies um, tucked within the departments, they all had expertise on something that he probably needed. And so he would avail himself of that expertise. They drew particularly on, on you know, the kind of 20 years, 25 years worth of, of combined expertise on, on, on otherwise sort of anodyne issues um, in order to, 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 you know, to create Medicare and Medicaid. Um, you look at somebody like Wilbur Cohen, who had been a lifelong bureaucrat um, within uh, the Health, Education, and Welfare Department, as it was then known. He became a key player under LBJ because he really understood not only um, you know, domestic policy, particularly health and education policy, he also understood, you know, he had deep relationships with all the staff members in Congress and with, you know, in governor's offices. And so he knew both how to move this Congress, you know, this legislation through to craft it in a way that it would move through Congress and then to build it in a way that, you know, he could partner with the states. You contrast that with the Trump administration. I mean, he's, he's you know, he's staffing his administration and his White House with people he watches on, on television. Um, his family members, 
uh, and you know his like I think his like bodyguard and his golf caddy. So I mean, like it's just a very different mentality, and it shows. They have you know, they can't even dismantle programs correctly because they don't know how to do it. Uh, something else your your book does is you reconsider figures who are well known. But in your estimation, um, the public perception of it's oversimplified. People like uh, Bobby Kennedy, people like Eugene McCarthy. Um, What do you have to say about them that you don't think is part of the commonly held perception of those two? Sure. I mean, you know, Bobby Kennedy, I'm, I'm certainly not the only one to make this observation. You know, I think he there. There's a myth about Bobby Kennedy that that was partly manufactured in in the aftermath of his death, um, that he was somehow the the good kind of moral liberal to Lyndon Johnson's you know kind of evil and and corrupt Texas persona. It's really not fair. I mean, Bobby you know treated LBJ just horribly when Johnson was vice president, despite John Kennedy's attempts to. Um, to show LBJ a, a lot of courtesy and deference, which to his credit, he did. Um, and he was a thorn on Johnson's side. You know, this is a guy who was not particularly um, animated by anti-poverty policy until he got to the Senate in 1965. You know, he was very late to that game. As attorney general, I think I would rate him a qualified failure on on the issue of civil rights. And it drove Johnson crazy by 1966-67 that Bobby was sort of positioning himself as the liberal alternative to Johnson, more pure on poverty, more pure on race, when in fact, most of these accomplishments were really Lyndon Johnson. So, uh, you know, I look at that and I, you know, it's fascinating to look at the blood feud between the two of them. And this is ultimately one of the reasons I think Bill Moyers kind of um, fell out with Johnson, because ultimately, you know, at the beginning, it was it was a, an advantage that Moyers actually had deep connections to the Kennedys, as you know, both to the family as well as to the staff. And was a Johnson guy. He was seen as a good bridge between the two. But as LBJ came to distrust Bobby more and more in 66, 67, he came to distrust Bill Moyers, who he thought was, you know, playing both sides of the ledger. Uh, You know, so that's I mean, that's one way to look at Bobby. And then Eugene McCarthy, I think, is this fascinating character. You know, the legend of his win in New Hampshire is a lot of fun. And it actually has raised the, you know, kind of elevated the status of the New Hampshire primary. But the fact was, is that he was sort of a quirky, almost accidental anti-war candidate, uh, Allard Lowenstein, who was you know, the kind of veteran organizer um, who was trying to find a candidate to run against Johnson in 68 in the Democratic primaries. You know, he struck out multiple times. He couldn't get Bobby to do it. He couldn't get George McGovern to do it. So he got McCarthy to do it. McCarthy was this very kind of lazy and diffident candidate, you know, in New Hampshire. He, you know, wouldn't go and, you know, you, back then it was a highly, you know, kind of unionized state with a lot of factories and one of the rituals you had to go through was that you had to get up early in the morning and go out at 5 a.m. and shake hands at factory gates. And McCarthy wouldn't do it. He said he wasn't a morning person was his excuse. And, you know, when he went on Johnny Carson, the late show, Carson famously asked him, you know, what kind of a president will you be? And he said, I think I'd be an adequate one. I mean, he was, you know, he was not, a, he was not like a very inspiring candidate. But um, I guess he did inspire, though. I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I sort of recently ran a piece on this in the New York Times, and I had a bunch of people point out that maybe I was being a little bit unfair because he did inspire this student army that that you know pulled off this massive upset in that in that primary. And I think he became a more disciplined um, candidate once he realized he might actually be able to win a bunch of primaries and maybe even take the nomination. Uh, so you know, he changed a bit after after New Hampshire, but. You know, I try to break down some of these myths uh, in this book. And, and, and what was the impetus for a 
a more liberal challenger to Johnson? Was it just Vietnam or was there also discontent uh, in the left at that time uh, about um, what you would call his moderate approach to domestic policy? Yeah, it was mostly Vietnam. I mean, one of the interesting things about these programs is that by 66, 67, 68, liberals in Congress are asking for more and more funding for the existing Great Society programs. They want to expand them. Uh, and Johnson is faced with this. He has, he has two problems. One, the war prevents him from doing that because it's it's consuming more and more of the federal budget and he can't go and ask for a tax increase because if he does, he knows he's going to have to he's going to have to level with the country about how much the war is costing. And he tried to hide the war costs um, and he knew that Republicans in Congress would demand uh, that he uh, that he scale back domestic spending. So he's getting you know, he's he's struggling to support the war and the Great Society, guns and butter, while you know, facing demands from liberals for more and more spending on these programs. Um, that having been said, I don't think that's that they weren't, they never questioned the, the guiding, you know, thesis behind the great society. It's not like liberals were saying, you know, Bobby Kennedy or, or, or Gene McCarthy, wow, this isn't working. We need to embrace, you know, radical wealth redistribution. We need a, you know, a guaranteed family income. Uh, we need a regressive income tax, uh, negative income tax. That that wasn't what was going on. But they they might have knocked him for not spending enough on his own programs. If you'll indulge me with a, a small anecdote, when I was in college, uh, I had a uh, po- I had a politics professor who did uh, nego- uh, negotiation role plays, and one of the other students uh, pretended to be Johnson, uh, trying to arm twist uh, a senator who the teacher was playing, and failed miserably. And after and afterwards, the teacher asked, "Well, why why did you try to do that?" And he said, "Well, I, I really Johnson's a hero of mine, and that's how he got things done by twisting arms and knocking heads." And the professor said in response, uh, "Johnson was run out of town, and he died a broken man." Uh, do you think that's a fair summation of how Johnson practiced politics and the result of that type of uh, uh, political maneuvering? Uh, I mean, I, th- I think that's reasonably fair. I, you know, like the Johnson treatment, the sort of the arm twisting, the the physicality of how he to you know get someone bend them to their will. I mean, some of that's true. One of my favorite stories is this, uh, you know, this guy Jim Rowe. Rowe uh, had known Johnson since the '30s, as had Jim Rowe's wife and Lady Bird. Um, they had all been young New Dealers, you know, first when Johnson was working on the Hill and later when he was a young, you know, 20 something year old congressman, Jim Rowe uh, was working for first as uh, he was uh, Franklin Roosevelt's, uh, you know, basically his, his personal assistant. He was basically it's not quite what it sounds like today. He was basically the top staff guy in the White House um, and they all knew each other at that point. And then he went on to have these really high ranking jobs at the Department of Justice and then later on the Nuremberg uh, trials. He was in private practice in the 1950s, and after Johnson had his heart attack, you know, Johnson asked Roe when he got back to his office when he when he was finally well enough to resume work. He asked Roe to leave his his law practice at least for a year or two and and go work for him in the Senate. You know, and at the time, his law partner was Tommy Corcoran, the famous you know DC fixer and former New Dealer. Um, and he you know he said like, no, I'm not going to do that. A, you know, he didn't want to leave his law practice, and B. He didn't want to work for Lyndon Johnson, even though he was a friend of his. He knew that how miserable that would be. And Johnson, you know, as Roe later explained it, it got unbearable. Everywhere he went, people would come up to him and say, why are you doing this to Lyndon? Like, you know, you've got him. You know, how could you not be, you know, behind Lyndon? He needs your help. 
and people, he said, would you know pass him in the street and grab him and say, "What is?" Because you know, Lyndon Johnson was calling everybody in Washington and saying, "Like, I can't believe Jim is doing this to me. He won't come work for me." You know, it was he wouldn't just twist your arm; he'd get everyone else to. And as as Roe later said, you know, the kind of the the critical moment came when he he got home and his wife, you know, said to him, "I can't believe you're doing this to poor Lyndon." And he said, "So fine, I'll do it." You know, and he goes and he works for him for one session. You know, and Tommy Corcoran says, "Don't worry, you know, I'll keep the practice going. You know, you'll you'll come back in a year or two. You know, he managed to last through one session of Congress. He couldn't deal with it anymore. He went back to his law practice. You know, that yeah, that was Lyndon Johnson. But I think there's another side of this that that goes under underappreciated. He understood power, its accumulation, and its uses. And he he talked about this repeatedly with Bill Moyers. He understood that he had a certain amount of power, both when he inherited the presidency and then when he depleted some of that, you know, that power and, and, and influence he had in order to get the, the tax cut and the civil rights bill through um, the, the war on poverty programs. And then he filled that political well back up in 64, you know, over really up to the brim when he beat Barry Goldwater, but he understood that he was going to be spending down that capital and that at the end of the four years, he wouldn't have any more left and he would either have to leave or run for president again to refill the well. And he was perfectly okay drawing down that political well on issues that were important to him, particularly civil rights, which would draw down that power more quickly than other things. And, you know, like when one of his staff members said to him early in his presidency, like, why are you going to waste the capital right now? on civil rights when it's going to drain so much of that goodwill. And, you know, he reportedly said, well, hell, what's the presidency for? So I think that's the other piece of Johnson that people don't as often appreciate. Yeah, he was like a needler and an operator and he could be really abusive and he could bend you to his will. But he was also perfectly willing to spend down that capital on things that were controversial because he cared about them. And so if you look at him leaving in 68 without any chits left to play, well, he did that on purpose. We're talking with Josh Zeitz, author of Building the Great Society, his fourth book. Uh, your previous books have really run the gamut of historical periods. Uh, there's white ethnic New York about post-World War II uh, society. There's Flapper about women in the 1920s. And there's Lincoln's boys uh, about, about the war for Lincoln's image. Uh, what propelled you to take on Lyndon Johnson? Yeah, I knew we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Great Society, and those always offer kind of great opportunities for for retrospectives. And, and, I, and I thought that, um, you know, there had been a lot of good academic history done on the kind of political economy in that era, but not a lot of like good, I, I, I want to say popular history. I think it's a perfectly fine term. I know some of my friends who stayed in academia consider it sort of a bad word. I don't, or a bad compound word. Um, but I wanted to make that some of, some of that work more broadly accessible uh, to a general reading audience. And, and so much of the popular work on Johnson focuses on Johnson and his personality and, you know, his his the individual Lyndon Johnson. I wanted to, to do something that looked more at um, the way in which he governed and led and, and that also gave some uh, accessible focus to the way that, um, you know, he and and liberals of that era thought about public policy, thought about questions like poverty and civil rights and opportunity. The author is Josh Zeitz. The book is Building the Great Society. If you want to read more of his work outside of the book, he is a contributing editor at Politico magazine with tons of fantastic historical insight. Thanks so much for being on New Books in Politics. Thanks for the invitation. I had a great time. <laughs> 